Never let a wolf in sheep's clothing spoil what Christ has accomplished. The work has finished and the worship has only just begun. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. We're all familiar with what is dubbed a spoiler alert. Essentially, it's a notification that whatever you're about to hear is going to ruin or potentially spoil the movie, the book, or the end result of whatever you are going to listen to or hear. Now, if you've not watched the Star Wars sequel trilogy, then you are probably better off than those of us who did, but I'm about to give you a spoiler of that movie. So consider this your spoiler alert. When the seventh movie came out called The Force Awakens in 2015, there were tens of thousands of fans on the opening weekend, not only in the United States, but around the world, who were waiting in line to see the kind of conclusion to the story. And what happened invariably, not only locally, but around the world, is that as people were leaving the earlier showings and people were in line for the later showings, the people from the earlier showings were beginning to call out the actual news of what happens in that movie. And so I'm like, here it is, I'm about to tell you what happened. One of the guys walked out in a group of men and they yelled to a crowd of people and they said, Han Solo is killed by his son, Kylo Ren. That was a tasteless act that ended up resulting in a fight. But that was something that spoiled the entire climax and surprise of that movie. And a spoiler does just that, it spoils the movie, it ruins the book. It takes the preferred outcome and modifies it. It, it reduces it from the potential of what it really could have been. When sports teams are going up against an underdog and they know that we just need to beat this team to go on to the finals, that underdog is praying and hoping that they will spoil the better team. In other words, they want to take the preferred outcome and modify it to reduce it from the potential of what it could have been. Now, I believe that that phrase, spoil, is the best term that we could use to describe what was happening to the church in Colossae. As Paul the Apostle is hearing the report from Epaphras about their faith, hope, and love, he's greatly encouraged, but he's also simultaneously concerned because some men had infiltrated their ranks who were seeking to spoil the good news of the gospel. They were introducing ideas and beliefs that would take the preferred outcome of the Christian faith, which the preferred outcome, of course, is union with Christ. It's being conformed to the image of Christ. And they were spoiling it from its fullest potential. They wanted to cast doubt on the sufficiency of Christ and begin to propose other mediators and other methods to take the Colossian Christians to what they believed was a deeper spirituality, but really was taking them off the course of their faith. And so in our section today in Colossians chapter 2, Paul begins to push back against the spoilers. So as he writes this, he doesn't want the church to be misinformed on what Christ has done. 
He doesn't want the church to be misinformed on who Christ is or forget who Christ is. Because if you forget who Christ is, then you forget who you are in him. He doesn't want the church to forget what Christ has done and thus what they have in him. And so in our passage today, we're going to see a clear picture of the gospel. And let's keep in mind as we study this, that Paul's purpose in recounting the gospel here is to combat those who would want to spoil, or you could say curtail, definitely diminish the person and work of Christ. And by the way, that is the game plan, the playbook of all false teaching. It is a diminishing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it puts the power in your hands and it demotes the power of Almighty God. False teaching puts you to work instead of you resting in the finished work of Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see the elements of the gospel here together. Now, the title for today's sermon is a little bit provocative. The title for the sermon today is Christ-Centered Religion. And this is part one of a two-part sermon on what we'd call Christ-centered religion. Now, before you push back against that title, I want to explain something that I've heard a lot lately. A lot of people use this phrase or this sentence, and I have to say that I myself am included in that because I have said this exact sentence before. Um, But a lot of people have said this, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now, that statement is everywhere. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. You type that in on Google, and you'll find this phrase everywhere. It's on billboards. You'll find it on t-shirts. It's on tank tops, bumper stickers, water bottles, coffee mugs, even iPhone cases. Now, I understand why people say this phrase and why they like the phrase, but I want us to understand that what we're doing when we say that is we're oversimplifying a very complicated issue. This phrase is trying to get the point across, and I get it. They're trying to get the point across that religion is where you try to escape the plight in this world, so you do things. Thus, religion is typically man-centered, and it's focused on myself being the Savior. And yet Christianity is distinct because God sent his Son to bear the plight of the world, and he's the Savior, and he does the work, and instead of get to work, it's it is finished. So I get that. I understand why people use that phrase. But we need to stop saying that Christianity is not a religion. Well, is it not self-righteous, legalistic, man-centered religion? Yes. But the truth is, religion is simply defined as a belief concerning the existence, nature, and worship of a deity, as well as the activity and the institution that relate to that belief. And so you could say simply that religion is piety in practice. And so based on that definition, we certainly would not exclude Christianity. In fact, throughout church history, we as the church have affirmed Christianity is a religion. However, we would say it's the one true religion. So saying Christianity is not a religion, it's just a relationship. That's like saying America is not a country, it's just an idea. Okay, it sounds catchy at first, but it's actually just a silly phrase. So do we want to emphasize that instead of dead works and rituals, we have a vibrant life-giving relationship with God because of and only through his son, Jesus Christ, and that he invites us because of the finished work of Christ 
to call him father and friend? Well, of course. But if that's our goal, why don't we just say that? So this morning, I want us to understand what we call Christ-centered or gospel-centered religion and what that looks like. And I said this as part one because the second half is found in the rest of chapter two. But we're going to save that section for next week. So here in part one, we're going to look at God's work. And next week in part two, we're going to look at our worship. So God's work, part one, our worship, part two. So today we're going to see four aspects of God's work in Christ-centered religion, gospel-centered religion. Number one, in verses nine and 10, we're going to see deity. We're going to see how Christ is divine. Then secondly, we're going to see death in verses 11 through 13a. We're going to see how Christ died for us. And then in verses 13b through 14, we're going to see debt, that there's a debt that has to be paid, that the wrath of God has to be satisfied. And then finally, number four, we're going to see disarmament in verse 15, that Christ has come and rendered our enemy powerless. So next week, we'll see what our responsive worship looks like. But the main idea today, as we dive in to Colossians chapter 2, is that religion, Christ-centered religion begins with a supreme creator who sent his son to die and to rise again, bringing life, bringing forgiveness, bringing cleansing, and bringing freedom. And not only that, but also victory to all who would believe. So let's begin with verses 9 and 10, and let's look, number one, at the deity of Christ. Verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, I would ask you to highlight or underline that word fullness. We saw this same word back in chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul said this. He said, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you have a Bible in front of you, please circle or highlight, underline the word fullness. The word in the Greek there is the word pleroma. Of course, it means fullness, but that isn't um, something that we fully understand. So the word fullness denotes this, the sum total of the divine powers and attributes of the Godhead. In other words, full divinity. So Jesus was not merely a good man with good teachings. He hasn't given us that opportunity uh, or that option to say he's just a good man and with a good Um, idea or good teachings. Neither is Jesus just a good mediator in a succession of good angelic mediators, which the Colossian heretics taught and believed. No, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, not 99%, but 100%. Here, Paul is emphasizing that Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. He's not lesser than the Father. We as Christians believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God is one in essence and three in person. And yet, Jesus, in Jesus, dwells the whole fullness of deity bodily. We know this, when people look at Jesus, they see the Father. In fact, Philip at one point said, hey, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Many people uh, that disagree with Christianity would say, listen, I would believe if God would just come down and show himself and make himself known. Well, he did come down and show himself and we crucified him. 
But see, the idea of bodily is very important in verse 9. It's an important concept. You see, in the first century, there was a belief known as docetism. And this was an idea that asserted that Jesus had no physical body, but he only seemed to have one. Now, it's important that we can combat heresy like that because the doctrine of the incarnation is crucial. John begins his epistle, 1 John, and he says, that which we have seen, which our hands have touched. You see, Jesus was not a spirit who made earthly appearances. He was God in the flesh. Later in that same epistle, John makes the argument that there's a lot of false teachers out there, but one way to determine a false teacher is to identify what they believe about the incarnation. He says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. We as Christians believe in what is called the hypostatic union, that Christ at the same time is truly man and truly God. So the fullness of the deity of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Jesus is not God detached from matter or body, nor is he just simply a man who is human and lacking divinity. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. And so that begins Paul's argument against the Colossian heretics. But then in verse 10, he then tells us what we have as followers of Jesus. He says in verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, we who are in Christ, we have fullness because we have him. John's gospel in chapter 1 verse 16 says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's not from our own fullness, it's from his fullness that we then are the recipients of all that he has for us. But listen, when Paul says we are filled in him, or you've been filled in him, that does not mean that the fullness of the deity dwells in you bodily. Okay, that's blasphemy. You and I are not God. The idea is that we have all that we need for life and godliness in Christ. Because he has the fullness and we're in him, we now have all that we need to live a healthy and fruitful and abiding Christian life. And, and he says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. That is the theme of this series, Jesus is Lord of all. He's the head of all rule and all authority. We've mentioned this previously, but he has the authority over every parent, every teacher, every principal, every policeman, every president, every despot and dictator and ruler and king and queen and emperor that has ever existed. Jesus Christ is supreme. He's Lord of all. He's the head of all rule and authority. As my son Aiden would always say when he was younger, and we were trying to teach him that a parent has authority, and yet a parent has authority under the lordship of Christ. Um, Aiden used to say this. He said, well, dad's the boss, but God is the bigger boss. And, and that's so true. George Ladd says this. Probably Paul was facing views that elaborated distinct orders of angels, and he purposed to assert that all evil powers, whatever they may be, whether personal or impersonal, have been brought into subordination by the death and exaltation of Christ and will eventually be destroyed through his messianic reign. One Greek translation says, and you are in him, having been completely filled full 
with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. You see, we've already seen the absolute supremacy of Christ in this letter. And here, Paul says that the fullness of deity is in Jesus. And you are in Jesus, thus you are complete. You are full. You have no need to look elsewhere. Christ is enough. Now, in verses 11 through 13, Paul begins to push back against the idea of circumcision as a rite of holiness or as a ritual that's required to enjoy the grace of God. So he points out that when you and I were brought into Christ by faith, when that happened, we were already circumcised in a spiritual sense. But then he moves from circumcision to show that there's a new and better way of identifying with the Lord. And so let's look at our second section of God's work in Christ-centered or gospel-centered religion. Let's look at death. Look at verse 11. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the Colossian heresy included some religious practices from Judaism. And most likely, that included the rite of circumcision. Well, what is circumcision? Without, of course, going into much detail, it's a cutting away of the flesh. It's this idea of being separated and distinct. And so God instituted it with Abraham, and and ultimately, it became a symbol itself of Judaism, of the Jewish religion, and eventually became a ritual and a requirement to follow uh, Jewish law. But see, there was, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Covenant, there was this outward act, but there was still an inward reality. Uh, you see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, circumcision is a picture of our hearts, that God ultimately wants to cut away the excess in our hearts. Not a circumcision done by hands, but a circumcision done by God. Now, those who are uncircumcised are those who are unbelievers and they're still in the flesh. And the circumcised are those who have become believers and God has gently cut away the excess out of our heart. In the New Testament, we read passages like this, Galatians 5, 6, where he says, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And so this idea is simply that our old nature has been cut away. That as we identify with Jesus, we realize that this circumcision has already happened. He's already given us new hearts. He's, he's separated us from the world. But see, that's not the best picture of our identity with Jesus. Paul says there's a better picture. There's the picture of baptism. And this is the picture of our old life being buried and our new life being raised with him through faith. So we were never intended just merely to perform the outward ritual, just putting our trust in the right itself to save. Those who are in Christ, we do not need to be circumcised because we've already had the foreskin of our heart cut away. 
So there's a better right that identifies us with Christ, and that's baptism. And so he identifies that in verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's what you were, he says, God made alive together with him. See, baptism is a superior right over circumcision to identify with Jesus. Now we know this, but it needs to be said, baptism doesn't save. It doesn't save, but it does communicate. If you're a Christ follower, but you've not yet been baptized since you believed, I would encourage you to reach out to your church leadership and ask them to baptize you in obedience to Christ's command. You see, when we are baptized, we're communicating to the world that we are now in Christ. Baptism in the New Testament is both literal and it's figurative. So literally, it means to dip or immerse. But figuratively, it means to identify with. So when a person is saved, they're immediately baptized into Jesus Christ. That happens at conversion. They now identify with him, the head. And so whatever happens to him, now we could say happens to us. So then when we're literally baptized, this is the means of communicating to the world and others that we are now identifying with Jesus. In baptism, we are symbolically buried with Christ. That's why in verse 12, he says, having been buried with him. He doesn't mean literally. He means this is symbolically. So the man who goes down into the water is put to death, so to speak. And the man who's raised out of the water has been symbolically raised with Christ. So though we were dead, past tense, in our trespasses, God made us alive. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, we as Christ followers also rise to walk in new life. We're no longer bound by legalism. We're not bound by sin. We're not bound by death, but we're empowered. And so when Paul says that God made us alive, the way I picture that is like a device that has been dead forever. It's never been activated. It's never been empowered. And so what you do, you grab some fresh batteries, you put those into the device, and suddenly it's brought to life. In other words, apart from the outside empowerment, it would have never had the capability in itself to produce life. We have died, and we have been buried, and we have risen with Christ and so baptism is a wonderful picture of this identity in him. Jesus didn't taste death just in a small way. He was completely put to death. Uh, he was put into the ground. There was no question about his death. And then he rose again triumphantly. There's no question about um, his rising from the dead. And so when we look at the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we identify with Christ in baptism. And we realize he's made us spiritually alive. And that would have been so amazing in and of itself that, that he regenerated us, that he made us alive. But see, it gets even deeper. Look at this third section, how God has dealt with our debt. He says in verse 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Now, there's a lot going on here. 
under the surface. And it's important to understand what is known as the doctrine of expiation. And so the idea of having our sins expiated is the act of removing something or taking it away. So it's the taking away of guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. We've heard of expiation, but most of us have heard of propitiation. And those are both very similar words. So propitiation is different than expiation. Propitiation is more about appeasing the wrath of God and restoring the fellowship based on what was expiated. So R.C. Sproul says this. He says, propitiation is the result of expiation. The expiation is the act that results in God's changing his attitude towards us. Expiation is what Christ did on the cross. The result of Christ's act of expiation is that God is propitiated. It is the difference between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one receiving the ransom. So look at verse 14 where it says, by canceling, that word cancel. That is a Greek word which can be translated anoint. It can be translated to wash, to wipe off, to wipe away, to obliterate, to erase, to blot out, to wipe out, or to cover with lime, like when you whitewash or plaster something. That word is found elsewhere in our Bibles, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And here it is, I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. That's the word that's used there. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. So the simple verb means to anoint. It's the same word used in John eleven two when Mary anointed Jesus. Um, but the compounded preposition in front of it means completely. So to put the words together, it would be translated to smear out or to completely wipe away. Well, what, according to Paul, was being wiped away? Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, it was the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Another translation says the handwriting of requirements, which was against us. He says it was a debt and a record of debt that you owed. Now debt uh, that he's ultimately speaking about here is the debt of our sin in light of the law. Debt is something that we are all too familiar with here in America. I was amazed to find out and a little bit discouraged to find out that the national consumer debt in America reached an all-time high last year of over $14 trillion. Many people begin their careers with tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, in student loan debt that takes decades to climb out of. So we're familiar with the concept of financial or consumer debt. But what's infinitely worse than credit card debt is the debt that we owe as sinners. Our spiritual debt is far greater than any credit card bill that we owe. When debts were owed in Paul's day, from historical evidence, we learned that the contract would be posted in the square of the city with the debtor's name and the amount that they owed posted. And if they didn't pay, the bill would be written on to show the guilt of the one who didn't pay. And this would serve as a warning to future people who would seek to give out a loan to this particular borrower. But if the debt was paid, then the person who gave the loan would go up to the contract and they would cross through the debt, in effect, saying, paid in full. Some have even suggested that people would nail a nail through the debt 
to show that it was paid. You see, the law, according to Paul, is the debt that looms over us. He says it's the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The law condemns. It looms over us, a penalty that we owe, and that can never be repaid by us. The legal demands of the law stand against us, condemning us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Each of the Ten Commandments has, as it were, united with the rest to draw up an indictment against us. The first commandment says, He has broken me. The second cries, He has broken me. The third, He has broken me. And the whole ten together have laid the same charge against each one of us. That is the handwriting of the law condemning every man or woman born while he remains in a state of nature. But according to Paul here, what is incredible is that Jesus not only crossed through the debt, it says he erased it. Now, when you file for bankruptcy today, according to the government, your credit is tainted for a number of years, even seven years. But see, at the cross, what we owed God was completely paid for. Jesus redeemed us and fully paid the price of the law, the debt that was owed. So your sin was more than forgiven. It wasn't merely wiped away. The legal contract against you itself was handled. So though we have sinned greatly, God forgives us completely. You may be watching this this morning and you think, well, God can't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. I've sinned so awfully. You don't know the depth and the magnitude and the nature of my sin. It is so horrible. It's so despicable. It's so deep. And yet I would say, then you don't understand what forgiveness is. Because God, understanding the depravity of man, sent his son to die in our place. That there's no sin too wicked. There's no uh, thing that you've done that's too far beyond the reach of a redeeming God. And so God went to the extreme of having his son, his precious son, nailed to a piece of wood. Beaten and stripped and, and scourged, crucified to deal with with our sin. And so rest assured, you, if you've repented of your sin and you've trusted Christ, your sin is forgiven. You may not feel forgiven, but we talked about that last week, having an assurance of your salvation. You by faith can know that you are forgiven, not based on your feelings, but based on the finished work of Christ. So if Christ being sufficient and being divine and granting us life and forgiveness, if that weren't enough, Paul goes on to show God's work in Christ-centered religion by reminding us, number four, of the disarmament. Look at verse 15. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, this is a seeming contradiction when you consider the cross. Rome, the greatest military and political power on the planet, along with the leadership of the Jews, which you could argue was the greatest religious power on the planet, had worked together to crucify the Son of God. So he seemingly was disarmed, he seemingly was put to open shame, and he was triumphed over as he was tried, beaten, and put to death publicly. So how could this be where Jesus is doing the triumphing and the disarming? N.T. Wright says, These powers, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. So how can that be 
where Christ has triumphed. Well, you see, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, Rome and the religious Jews may have crucified Jesus, and they may have thought we are victorious and we've put him to open shame. But see, this was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of our sovereign God. Here, Paul says, no, it was through the cross of Christ that his enemies were disarmed and put to open shame. You see, in Rome, those who were defeated in war were triumphantly marched through the city streets naked to declare their total and unequivocal defeat. So not only were the enemies defeated and disarmed, meaning they were stripped of their weapons and stripped of their defenses, and they had to surrender, not only that, but they were also put to open shame. This was kind of the Roman triumph parade. And they were humiliated and paraded in front of all of Rome. And so Paul is saying that's what happened to the enemies of Christ. They were humiliated, they were paraded as Christ was poured out for the sin of the world. Remember, Christ is the head of all rule and authority. And here, Paul says again, the rulers and authorities have been disarmed. They were put to open shame. They were triumphed over. Our greatest adversary, Satan, has been disarmed and been subjected to open shame because of Christ's victory at the cross. So the gospel is a victory for you and for me, even as it's a shameful defeat for the enemy. Erdman says this, the death of Christ was not only a pardon, it also manifested might. It not only canceled a debt, it was a glorious triumph. We have a victory, a triumphant victory, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what was intended to be putting Christ to open shame was actually Christ putting his enemies to open shame. And so the Christian religion begins with a supreme creator who sent his son to die and rise again, bringing life, forgiveness, cleansing, freedom, and victory to all who believe. And Paul says, I want to make sure you know this, that you remember this, so that someone doesn't come along and try to spoil what you have in the Christian faith. I don't want them to detract, to diminish, to take you away from the simplicity of who Christ is. Now, to apply this text, the true application is actually found in verses 16 through 23. And so your homework is to go as this service concludes. And this week, I want you to read and meditate on chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And we'll exposit them in detail next Sunday. And that is the true application of what Christ has done. Uh, we'll see how our response in worship uh, then is to follow up from who he is. But for our purposes together today, we can draw four main application points. So if you're taking note, I hope you are, jot these down. Because we're in Christ, number one, we are complete. So we don't look elsewhere for fullness. It's found in him. Haven't you been seeing that as the theme throughout this letter, throughout this epistle, that we don't need to go anywhere else. We've found all that we need we're complete in him. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number 30, asks this. It says, do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, 
who seek their salvation and happiness in saints in themselves or anywhere else? And the preferred response is they do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only deliverer and savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete savior or that they who by a true faith receive this savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. You see, the Colossian heretics were trying to spoil the work of Christ and to minimize it. And they argued, you didn't have all that you need in Christ. You need more. But Paul says, no, in him we have been filled full. Warren Wiersbe says, when a person is born again into the family of God, he is born complete in Christ. And I love this. He says, his spiritual growth is not by addition, but by nutrition. He grows from the inside out. I love that. We grow not by addition, but by nutrition. So we have all that we need through our knowledge of him. So the gospel is rooted in the incarnation of Christ, who's truly God, and yet he condescended to become a man, to identify as one of us. So because we're in Christ, we are complete. But secondly, because we're in Christ, number two, we are alive. We have been brought from death to life. And so we rejoice in this new life and we live for his glory. Think of it. You are no longer dead in your sin. If you have trusted Christ as Savior, you've repented, you are now, the Bible says, quickened. You're made alive. You once were dead in your sin, and now he's given you spiritual life, spiritual vitality. This is not just religious action. This is regeneration, being made alive by the Holy Spirit by faith. There's a story told of a missionary who visited a primitive hut, and they became nauseated by the filthy dirt floor that they had to sit on. And he suggested that why don't you just wipe the dirty surface with soap and water and kind of clean it a little bit. But the man replied, listen, the floor that you're sitting on is just clay. It's packed down and dry. And so if we add water to it, all that's going to do is turn it into mud. The more you try to wash it, the worse the mess becomes. And so ultimately, the hut needed something besides just a dirt floor. And that is what we seek to do sometimes when it's religion apart from Christ. We just try to, I'm just going to wash myself. I'm just going to clean this dirt off. And what we do is we make it worse. We don't need to wash the dirty floor. What we need is a new floor. We need a new heart. And that is what Christ has done. It's not just activity, even good religious activity. It's not reformation. It's regeneration. We need a new heart. We must be born again from above. And Christ has done the finished work of dying in our place and rising again. And now we can identify him with his death, burial, and resurrection. I love the idea that we are made alive. We're made new. And John Bunyan loved that as well. In the Pilgrim's Progress, he says this, The happy man was born in the city of regeneration, in the parish of repentance unto life. He was educated in the school of obedience. He works at the trade of diligence and does many jobs of self-denial. He owns a large estate in the country of Christian contentment and wears the plain garments of humility. He breakfasts every morning on spiritual prayer and sups every evening on the same. He also has meat to eat that the world knows not of. He has gospel submission in his conduct, due order in his affection, sound peace in his conscience, sanctifying love in his soul, 
real divinity in his breast, true humility in his heart, the Redeemer's yoke on his neck, the world under his feet, and a crown of glory over his head. I love that. He is born in the city of regeneration. You and I have been made alive. And so that should remind us that we are to live our lives giving glory and thanks to God. So because we're in Christ, we're made alive. But not only that, thirdly, because we are in Christ, number three, we are forgiven. So we stop trying to obey out of obligation. We'll learn this a little more next week, but obedience in the Christian faith is a joy, not a job. Paul explains that the demands and the condemnation of the law has been removed from us. And that wasn't something that we accomplished. It was because of Christ. As the hymn Rock of Ages says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. You and I are forgiven and we're freed from the looming and terrifying wrath of God solely because of Christ's merit. Because you and I have been forgiven of such an insurmountable debt, well, then we're free to obey with joy. We're free to forgive our brother who owes us pennies in comparison to what we owed God. We can have mercy and compassion and love for those who still walk in darkness and condemnation, and we can point them to the light and the hope of the gospel. So because we're in Christ, we have been forgiven. But lastly, number four, because we're in Christ, we are victorious. So we choose to walk in joyful, bold triumph as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, because we're in Christ, the dreadful enemies of the world, the flesh, our sin, and of course the unnatural enemy, death, have all been rendered powerless. So our most fearsome foe, Satan himself, has been stripped of his power and laid bare and paraded shamefully by the victory of the cross. So that means no matter what we face, we can choose not to live in fear, but by faith. And so we stand behind the captain of our salvation, who, like the emperor in the triumph march, has vanquished all of his foes. No one or no thing can stand in our way. The last enemy has been defeated. And so that means you and I can walk in joyful, bold triumph as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we take it to our coworkers, as we take it to our families, as we take it to our communities, and yes, as we take it even to the most remote corners of the globe, because our sovereign God has disarmed all the rulers and authorities through his triumph on the cross. And as we close, I want us to consider what we have in Christ. Remember that we have regeneration because he made dead men alive. Remember that we have resurrection because he died and rose again and we were baptized into him. Remember that we have reconciliation because he forgave us all our transgressions. Remember that we have righteousness because he who knew no sin exchanged his righteousness for our sin. And we have a religion that is true, where the glory is given to God, not to man. Never let a wolf in sheep's clothing spoil what Christ has accomplished. The work is finished, 
and the worship has only just begun. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, we continue to recount and remember and recall the glories of the gospel. We thank you that Christ is Lord, that he is divine, that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. We thank you that you have come and died in our place and that we, through baptism, can identify with Jesus. We can identify with our sins being forgiven, that there's an old nature and there's a new nature, and now we are complete in him. We thank you, Lord, that our debt that we owe to the law, the requirements against us that we could never fulfill, that we, being born of woman, would continue to falter because of the nature of sin that we have. We now have that debt forgiven, and it's been obliterated. And Lord, we thank you that we have the victory through the triumph of the cross. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that we would live lives that are meaningful. We would live lives that are bold. We would live lives, Lord, that are, are a great picture of a regenerated life. That we would have Zoe, we would have that eternal life that doesn't just begin when we put on immortality. It begins today when we receive Christ. So Lord, if there's anyone watching this today that is not a believer in Jesus Christ, would you convict them of their sin? Father, draw them. Help them to turn from their sin, to repent of it, and to trust Christ with their eternal salvation, that they would receive Jesus as Lord. We pray for them today. We pray for those who are in Christ today to live distinctly different because of the gospel. Lord, help us not to be afraid to say Christianity is a religion. It is a glorious worship of our glorious God. And Lord, we thank you that that then impacts the way that we believe and the way that we live. So we pray, Lord, that we would have boldness to live for you and that you would strengthen us today by your grace and by your spirit. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the work that you're doing. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together. And we pray, Lord, that you continue to be at work in and through our church family, our church community. And we ask all of this in the name that matters, the name that is above every name, that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That is the name Jesus. We thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to uh, leave today with a closing benediction. I want to encourage you um, from Numbers chapter 6, the uh, blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's our prayer for you this week. God bless you guys. Hey, don't forget, we're going to be meeting together next Sunday, live online and live at the port at 930 and 11. Guys, have a great week. God bless. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.